A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Hi, this is Mark. I don't normally do this, but the poem in today's episode is about an emotive topic. So I just wanted to give you a heads up so that you can decide whether this is an episode that you want to listen to or whether right now is the best time for you to listen. The poem is from a book by an English poet, Harry Mann, and a Norwegian poet, Endra Ruset, that is a response to the terrorist attack in Norway in 2011. Now, we deliberately chose a poem that does not include a description of the attack, so there is nothing graphic in the episode. And it is a really moving reading and interview. Harry and Endra have done a remarkable job with a very difficult subject. But of course, this is a sensitive topic, so I just wanted to let you know up front so you can make an informed decision about listening. So if you would like to keep listening now, in a moment you will hear a musical transition, then after that you'll hear Harry read the poem in English, followed by Endra reading it in Norwegian. We'll explain why it's in two languages in the course of the interview. Okay. As I Push the Door by Harry Mann and Andre Rousset. As I push the door, the hollow of your guitar, newly sewn with a spider's web, chimes a broken chord. Someday the sun will absorb the earth. Grief, like music, possesses us. I run a finger over the surfaces both of us have touched. Your heights on the door, the neck of your guitar, your songs in this room now rest as snow. At the window. När jag öppnar dörren klinger hulrummet i gitarren din. Nyligt sydd med spindelvev från en ödelagd sträng. En dag vill sola sluka jorda. Musik håller tak i oss. Jag stryker en finger över överflatan. Begge av oss har berørt høyden din på døra. Gitarhalsen din, sangene dine hviler i dette rommet, som snø ved vinduet.
Harry, Endra, where did this poem come from? We'd started by thinking about how do you respond to a series of events that are that seem so chaotic and so senseless, um, and trying to understand where do you even where do you even begin um, for something that has so such little explanation behind it. So the whole sequence was um, about two attacks that took place on the twenty second of July, twenty eleven, in Norway. The first of which was a was a bombing in Oslo. Uh, it was a 950-kilogram fertilizer bomb, which the perpetrator drew, uh, drove into downtown Oslo, into the government quarter, and detonated, um, at which point they switched vehicles, dressed as a police officer, drove about 20 miles north to the remote island of Utia, which is home to the Labour Party's youth summer camp. Um, which is uh, and the Labour Youth Wing is called the AUF in Norway, and they were having a summer camp there, mostly teenagers. He took the ferry across to the island, armed with a pistol and a rifle, um, and then began shooting. And it was one of the worst mass shootings in uh, European history. To then think about how you can write... Uh, poetry in response to what was both a national uh, tragedy, a shocking tragedy, and something that was an international tragedy was extremely, extremely difficult. Looking back at uh, the amount of media that was already around at the time, which was sort of dramatic uh, recreations, plays, um, television programs, documentaries, films, um, and even fiction, um, there was so much that had been covered where they were looking at a framing chronology why to kind of pathologize why it had happened. And at that point, um, the focus of attention had been on the perpetrator with that chronology and those two uh, came together. And I think what was quite incredible is Andre wrote a poem called uh, Projectil, um, which was really a statement to the effect of looking at what this had been like for the victims uh, and the depth of the injury. At the time, there was it was very unusual as a crime because not only was this, uh, not only had, we didn't have vocabulary at the time, there were, people didn't talk about incels or misinformation or fake news mm-hmm. uh, or conspiracy theories hadn't, you know, hadn't made, that leap from political satire to political strategy. It just hadn't happened. And so it made it even more incomprehensible. And there was a very public trial, and it was very rare to have a mass shooter who was caught alive, and they had a chance to interview. Mm-hmm. So at the trial, which took place in 2012, uh, it was televised on NRK, which is... The, the Norwegian equivalent to the BBC. Uh, and uh, they read out the indictment document and court pathologists were brought forward to explain uh, what had happened to each individual who had died. And at that point, the audio from the programme was cut. So it was censored from broadcast. It was seen, the material was seen as too graphic. 
Um, and this graphic censored material really was the only kind of handrail to hold on to because it was the thing that showed actually what is left behind when the large scale of the attack did not match at all the small-mindedness of the motivation. Uh, and so the only thing that was left to think about was what does this injury mean? Uh, and that's where Andre's poem came in, I think, to answer that. Uh, and it was extremely moving, and now it's become taught on on, on the syllabus um, at a number of universities uh, in Scandinavia. And so Andrew came to London to Poetry Parnassus in, in uh, July uh, 2012 and presented the poem. Um, and uh, and really from there, it was a question of what what else can be added, what else can be said. Uh, yeah. Um, is that roughly how you see it too, Andre? Has that been your experience with it? Yeah, I think think one thing that's important to mention is that these these poems, the poem that we read, is 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 actually shaped after uh, kind of shadows of 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 the victims. So every poem in this book, except from the middle part, comes to you as kind of like a shadow of a face, a shadow of a victim, which is a very extreme, but at the same time very effectful way to to present the poem. Um, so this poem that Harry and me read is it's basically a very simple poem about grief and about missing someone. I think uh, it's very unusual poem to pull out of the collection, but I'm very happy that it has been because it's a very basic poem about what someone who goes away leaves behind. So, so this poem mm. is very classical in a way. It's a very classical poem about grief and about losing mm-hmm. someone you love and and what is i guess is 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 a little bit different with this project is that i have a long story about um, the 22nd of july and utah and the tragedy that that struck our country but this is not first and foremost a personal book it's a book where we have taken on you know um victims and like uh, casual casualties from from this from this tragedy and kind of try to shaped this poetry in a kind of grief poetry tradition. And so this poem here, I guess, you know, you, you hear about this this um, this cobweb in the guitar. Like the guitar is a symbol also of uh, Utøya because kids go have been going there every year until this year mm. to celebrate political ideas, um, social democrats, and the guitar is always the kind of instrument that are being played around the bonfire of Utøya. So this island where these poems are kind of extracted from, this has been, uh, you know, the safest place on earth, the place where kids go to uh, start their lives being politically active. Mm -hmm. So the poem kind of goes back to that. About It's about losing someone you love. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Could I just come in and just ask a bit about the chronology of the writing process here? Because I want to come back to this specific poem in a minute. But Harry, did you say that Projectile was the first poem that Andre yeah. you had written? Yeah. Uh, and then would, did you two know each other before then? Hardly. Did you come to know each other because of that poem? What? I, I'd, I'd, uh, 
I knew Harry because we had been to um, some gatherings before, and I was very impressed by by Harry's writing and about his presence. So, I guess you know mm-hmm. these are kind of these things you don't know really why you reach out to someone in the world. But for me, mm-hmm. it was Harry, and and uh, and it felt almost destined to be that because um, I don't know. Uh, Harry was, um, in my opinion, you know, one of the the really great young poets in Europe, and. Harry is very different from me, where I am kind of like a very emotional, uh, a little bit without limits, but Harry is very different. So we kind of have kind of a different way to take up, you know, different way of perception and way to, to work. Yeah, Harry. So, so, but the main reason why I reached out to Harry is because in Norway, this tragedy has kind of like, it's, it's, it's sucked all the air out of the room. It's, it's everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and when, my publisher asked me to 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 write a book about this. I had I needed someone from the outside, someone who could kind of see this tragedy also from a different point of view than I do as a Norwegian. Mm-hmm. So there are many reasons why I reach out to Harry, and I think this this whole process of doing a book together. I never thought it would pos- was possible to share a book with someone because you have your own voice. But this has really it's changed that perception for me because uh harry was the you know we we needed to be two voices to be able to write through this darkness because this is uh extremely direct and brutal book in some way and it's also a book Mm -hmm. that tries to bring some hope through this tragedy uh i don't know if we succeed in that but this is uh there's so many things to 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 talk about. I'm just going to leave it at there because I usually speak a lot more than I should. So <laughs> I just wait. Well, well, can I come in and, and build on that, really? Because, I mean, on the one hand, I think this is a beautifully written, there's a lot of skill and a lot of heart in this book, but it just strikes me to take this on required, must have required so much courage. I mean, you know, we, we I remember reading about this and seeing when it happened. I mean, was there not a part of you that thought, well, hang on, I'm going to leave that for other people? But what was it that made both of you think, I want to take this project on? I think the projectile poem was kind of came from, I guess, I was very, uh, du- uh, during the trial, I was home, I was ill for a year, so I was staying at home and I was watching this trial. So this projectile poem came from just kind of, just it came, it was a found poem that I heard on the screen and I, and I wrote it down. And, uh, and then I didn't want to really write about this tragedy, but my publisher asked me, is there any possibility to write this book? I I don't think, I think braveness is one thing. For me, it's, it's basically the problem or the question that how can you move so closely to other people's tragedies as kind of an outsider? My, my father was, was a psychiatrist to help some of the survivors mm-hmm. after I, I've talked you know, to a lot of the survivors, but how, like, is poetry in Norway? Poetry has been very close, linked with personal loss and personal tragedy. So one of the yeah. one of the uh, one of the most difficult questions is how can you take an event that uh, still affects so many people in a, like parents, survivors, friends? It's not a hundred years ago. It's it's it's, it's close few years since this has happened. How can you kind of process mm-hmm. that material? in an artistic way as an outsider. Is that possible? I think it is, because I think if poetry is only linked with personal loss, if you're not able to do, write something about a collective trauma, 
and make it your, into poetry. I think think uh, think poetry has lost some dimensions. But uh, so that that's you know a lot of difficult questions, ethical questions, as well. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, yeah, yeah, that was great, Harry. How how was all of that for you? I think that we. I think part of it was, uh, yeah. I mean that. Um, I think. Uh, I think part of for, for me reading about uh, the reading uh, poetry responses to the tragedy, um, and sort of watching things like the Netflix twenty second of July, Paul Greengrass film, and countless documentaries, and listening to, and at the same time reading through uh, endless court documents there's there was a, just a huge comparison between uh the pathologizing of the individual responsible and centering the focus on the on the tragedy and, and what happened and the survivors and the families and the bereaved and that process of recovery and survival that that is ongoing you know it's something which doesn't have an end point um it's something that people must live with and it is extraordinary the bravery of people who've gone who continue to go through that that process that um and there have been so many studies that have followed up on survivors and how they feel and how that impact of ptsd has impact how that's impacted their lives how it's difficult to hold down a job how you've got to sort of continually be in a in a position of self-care and self-awareness um when I first when I first met Andre to start working on this project, uh, Andre was I think four had, was, had written four books of poetry at that point. Have been um, a festival director of a major literary festival in Norway, uh, and I meanwhile had been writing in my attic, and my first pamphlet had just come out. So the sort of scale was really different. <laughs> Andre was much much more experienced as a poet than I was, um, and I was used to writing about. Um, scientific experiment and endangered species were the two big things that I'd been working on. Um, uh, mm-hmm. So to suddenly write um, elegy on this kind of scale uh, was something c- completely new to me. And, um, uh, but this, but reading countless court documents and reading about survivors and their, and their journey and the bereaved and their journey. And I just found that it was, impossible not to write about uh, and it felt uh, that it should be part of our vocabulary being geographical neighbours in the UK to Norway we're so close to that country and how can we know so little at the same time Uh, so it seemed Mm. extremely important to write about as a subject and simultaneously completely impossible to write about um, Andre said that, uh, that it was about picking up on the atmosphere uh, and the sounds in the atmosphere that everything would be chaotic. When we first started working on the poems, all we had to work with were, were small fragments um, and coming from that into a position of then finding forms, finding the right form was really integral um, to making to, to, to carry that to carry that across. And we spent so long crafting carefully into these, as Henry says, these shadows, these shadow face shapes. Um, and that point, that felt where the poem had started to sort of gather meaning and it had started to find its form and it had started, and each 
voice in each of the experiences that we've been reading through, which were so profound and intense, we were able to then collect together. And in this particular poem, we've been looking at, we've been reading about so many people who've been singing around the fire, a lot of the kids who go to mm-hmm. ETA, you know, that alcohol's banned after the events of the day are over, the disco's finished, you dissolve back into the campsite uh-huh. and play play songs around the fire. And a lot of uh, uh, a lot of teenagers have been talking about the fact they've been playing uh, songs by sort of Data Rock, who are quite a famous Norwegian band, um, a bit like the Go Team, and been playing Data Rock and they've been playing Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper as well <laughs> around the fire. And it seemed it felt impossible mm-hmm. not to write a song therefore that would write a poem that would be about yeah about that sharing of song um and at the same time the fact that that song seems to sort of continue on uh, and for me the symbol of the guitar is, is something which is in any teenager's life it's probably the one object that gets the, the collects the least amount of dust is the thing that we're sort of addicted to uh-huh. um and i think a lot of people have had that experience of being in a in a garage band or being in bands with their, their friends uh, or going along to gigs uh, where their friends have been playing, and there's, and that felt extremely familiar um, uh, um, across both countries. There's quite an important role, really, um, in writing the poems. I'm conscious of the fact that they're going to be translated into Norwegian, which is it gives you less of an opportunity to use uh, idiom and wordplay. Uh, you know, you're really trying to think about how something going to transform into another language and still be extremely clear and mutually understood. Um, and that was also very important here, which is partly how it ends up with this kind of clear style at the end of it. It really is. And you pick up on not just this poem, but so many of them, you pick up on a really telling detail. I mean, that's, you know, the guitar's newly sewn with a spider's web. I mean, it just says mm. so much, doesn't it? That no one's been playing this for a while. And I think, you know, last month I was reading Wilfred Owen's war poem Futility. And one thing I noticed when I recorded it again is, is it's a really well-known war poem, but I realized, you know what, if you didn't know this was by Wilfred Owen, you wouldn't necessarily pick up it was a mm. war poem because it's just quite a gentle looking at this body of a dead soldier and and the feelings that come out of that. And similarly with this, I think one of the, the context is one of the things that makes this a heartbreaking poem, that it's you're reading it within the context of that sequence, and we know what's happened, and we know what the absence is. Um, so, I mean, it, it really doesn't have to work hard, does it? I think it's a, it's a fabulous poem in many ways because by picking this up now, I can I can see some qualities with it that I have been thinking about. I think I think some part of this project is that since uh, since the tragedy in, at the on the twenty second of July, there has been written. Numerous books, um, prose books, uh, you know, uh, Austin Sayesha has written a brilliant, famous book about called One of Us. Uh, so there's so many tales that are kind of is narratives of this event. And I think if there's one thing poetry can do, and it has not been written a lot of poetry uh, about it, there are some, is that you can go into a situation, you can go into this kind of uh, chaotic um, uh, moment uh, that I think, after uh, uh, hearing and reading about the, a lot of the survivors, is that this feeling of chaos and fright. And fright. Uh, so I think I think poetry can do something in describing going into kind of this 
this uh, tragedy. It's, it's 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 in a different way than than um, a prose book can. So, as I understand it, some of the poems started with you, Harry, writing in English, and some started with you, Endra, writing in Norwegian, and then you you swapped over and translated. Is that right? Yes, that is right. At the same time, uh, it must be said that they are co-written. They are co-written because the nature of the project is that if Harry started the poem and I started the poem, it's kind of it's it's kind of grown together in a way. So it's not it's not just so mechanically that I've written a poem and Harry has translated, and the opposite. These 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 poems have kind of grown into each other. So it's 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 I think it's impossible to kind of disconnect them in that way because so it's a it's co-written, but the process has been that one has started with one poem and the other one with, and then, yeah. yeah as, we, as we went through the translation uh, process, I would make alterations in the English according to Andre's translations and vice versa. So there was the conversation between the poems and how we approach them. Um, and that all, that went through right from the uh, beginning all the way through to sort of the, the finished edit. So yeah, as Andre says, there was definitely, uh, while we kind of had written and translated first drafts effectively as it developed, it became more and more of a conversation. We'd also said there were certain themes that we wanted to try and pick up on between poems. So we'd sort of set ourselves that deliberate conversation from one poem to the next. So this poem actually picks up on themes elsewhere in the book. And can I pick up on the the form? So if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the poem, then I would really encourage you to go, um, well, obviously, pick up the book but if you don't have it handy then go to a mouthful of air.fm and and look for this episode in the archive and you can see that the words of the poem are laid out in the shape of a shadow portrait like you say it makes a face and i think this is the first time we've had a, a concrete poem like this on the podcast so i'm curious what you know given that you'd all you know you you decided you were going to accept this heroic commission, if you like, and, and tackle this subject. What made you home in on this particular form as a way of doing it? Uh, I mean, uh, we had gone through a series of different forms uh, to, uh, that we tried out. I traveled across to Oslo and Andre came over to here to the UK. Um, and we had, uh, and we discussed different different approaches that might work. I mean, f- for, for me, there were various things that uh there was one thing in particular, which is for my previous book, Finders Keepers, I, t- I had written a poem in the shape of the UK and I'd established how to create concrete poems that were in a specific shape. And in that process, I'd mm-hmm. also investigated concrete poetry for its properties of memorial, which was in with Finders Keepers, that particular book was about memorializing lost species that pretty much by the time the book was published would be vanishing from Britain's wildlife. And... Um, for this for this book, I, uh, I looked at uh, crafting the poems in a in a similar fashion, because there are various there are various aspects to the concrete poem. One is that again thinking about the translatability from one language into another and how um, how much easier that becomes when you when you've got a, an anchor point like a visual image, um, hmm. but also right. the other element, which is the fact that uh, concrete poetry. Um, as the De Campos brothers described it, was to say it should be as easy to understand as a sign that points to the airport. It should have this quality to it. Uh, and so 
Um, so the concrete poem has that property. And in addition, looking back through quite a, quite a few poets when they first encountered concrete poetry, come, come at it via George Herbert's Easter Wings, which is this poem which is all about resurrection, death and resurrection. Um, and behind picking behind the curtain of that poem, in fact, is Simeas of Rhodes. Herbert was was reading translations of Simeas of Rhodes, who himself was writing visual poems in the shape of an axe and an egg and various other shapes that were that were that were found in, in the books that George Herbert had to hand. Um, so Simeas of Rhodes was a poet who was around in 300 BC uh, or thereabouts um, and wrote poems in uh, in a variety of different shapes using uh, what were known as technopagnia, techne, which means um, a sort of, uh, it's literally a technical game, technopagnia, pagnia being game. And those poems in of themselves, the original technopagnia that he was writing, um, were about this idea of conferring um, the conferring the transcendent onto the reader. And one of the ways it did that is that with the axe in particular, it was about the axe that had chopped the wood to make the wooden horse that travelled through uh, the walls of Troy. And the idea was that this was therefore an object that had managed to make it beyond human life through something which had been constructed by the gods and into another life, into another immortality, in other words. And the argument of the poem is that you're reading this poem now and therefore that idea and if it's an idea, then it's in your mind. And if it's in your mind, then it's part of you. Has travelled beyond this world into another immortal, into an immortal realm. And there's this idea that as you read a concrete poem, part of you is travelling into this other space, into this beyond after space. Um, and so that felt to me to be the right form to use to talk about that place. And for us. I mean, for me personally, I'm a, I, I, I don't really believe in an afterlife, uh, but I do also see that um, in a lot, particularly in, in Sami religion, there's this view that all objects in the world um, have a soul. There's a kind of animism to all things, um, and that and both a kind of humanist perspective and a Sami perspective meet in the idea that there is a soul in all things. That all things are regenerating and are in a larger cycle of life. And so the, the two very much so connect. Um, so that was all part of why, we, why we'd chosen that form. I think for me, when, when Harry suggested that with you know, this, this idea, when you go into <clears throat> the memorial center of, um, and they go under the government quarter in Oslo, there is a room where you find all the portraits of, people who died in this tragedy all the 77 victims this room is extremely yeah you can imagine going into that room and looking into all these these faces and for me it's a very extreme but at the same time i thought this tragedy meets us through the perpetrator so much and i thought to give each poem the face or the shadow of a victim it does something to you. The poem, the po- when we read poetry, we all, you know, it's abstract, it's everything. But just the fact that these faces are meeting you as a poem does something to the way you read the book. 
definitely, definitely. I think it's yeah, it's very much so an extension of that grammar of memorial, isn't it? Um, with that room, uh, that was incredibly moving. The twenty second of July Center in Oslo. When that that is said, we also uh, I I teach um, at the high school in Kristiania, which is uh, for text writers in Oslo. One uh, and then uh, one of my students there was one of the survivors of it, which was an incredible story um, that he told, um, very touching. But but when he, when I talked to him, it was about how do you balance that showing faces of victims as words. By biographical material, how where does the line go? How what can you do? Uh, so so this was also a, a huge discussion. The, the ethics about uh, how do we present these kind of faces of victims as poetry? Do we put bio, biographical material inside a poem, or do we not? We ended up after advice to to shade that out so that there's no specific biographical material connected to the individual faces, which was one of the advices we got, and uh, we, we changed that. Hmm. One question I had was, you know, there was an in, a quote from Wilfred Owen that I was reading in last month's podcast was, he's, he's talking about war poetry. He said, it can't console. A poet can only warn. And I wondered if you, you know, what, what were your hopes? What were your intentions for a book like this? I think this book has split. I think there's a different reactions to it. I think some people find it very provoking and very unnecessary. I think pe- some fa- people find it very difficult and hard and brutal. And I think some people find a lot of consolidation uh, in, in in these poems. So uh, I think we from 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 the start when we knew we had took this on, we knew there was not going to be one type of reaction. I think in Norway this is a difficult. Difficult book to that to digest if you if not using the wrong expression because it's so close to us it's so uh, it's everywhere and and the book itself doesn't give any explanation it it is it's moving into the the dark fear and chaos room of, of of what happened so I think the basic thing to be a little bit cliche is that you want people to ask a question when you read this book I hope I hope that to raise some question good or bad to to the reader and the reception in Norway has been very different from the reception in England which shows these things are very touchy uh, still of course in Norway and uh, so for for me to have had readings outside of Norway has has been very um, useful or I'm very glad for that because this is um, this dark cold matter is still such an integral part of the Norwegian society now. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think that poems have got. Uh, I think writing um, writing poems. There's so many uh, re- reading poetry. We like to. There's so many. If you look at something like the poetry pharmacy, um, there is definitely an attitude and a view that poetry is there uh, can offer a kind of salve for mental health and has such an important role to play in mental health in showing to us that we are not alone and how extreme we we might feel and grief is universal part universally part of that contract of of love we lo- we love and so we grieve and we grieve so we love there's this uh, and and the fact that poetry can kind of speak back to that 
I think is intensely valuable. Poetry has this capacitive nature to both hold on to something important and to electrify our own understanding uh, and to make something familiar glow in us. And I think that's exciting. Whether it's talk when it's talking about something which is a national tragedy, which is so painful and raw and difficult to address, the individual feelings that we have that we find typically inexpressible can sometimes find a sympathetic resonance in a poem that we're reading. And that in of itself, that sudden moment of connection across time is extremely powerful and part of the human condition that poetry can speak to. And I think as much as it was incredibly difficult and continues to be really difficult to talk about, and as Andre says, we had no aspirations that we would, that these poems would actually be able to console fully or to find any kind of answer. They can at least put an arm around the shoulder. And this is what the ambition of the project was to say, hey, you're not alone, um, share share with me. And uh, and that's the kind of emotion that got the poems off the ground in the first place, where we started from, and it's also where, where we ended. Well, thank you both. I, I really do think this is a poem that it grows the more you... I mean, I've spent a bit of time with it before the recording today, and that's been my experience as it's really grown with familiarity and that's sad in a way because of the depth of the emotion that's, that's sinking in. But it's, you know, I really think the two of you have done a wonderful job with this book. So let's take a listen to the poem again, both versions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor to be, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy. Really, really, yeah. As I Push the Door by Harry Mann and Andre Rousset. As I push the door, the hollow of your guitar, newly sewn with a spider's web, chimes a broken chord. Someday the sun will absorb the earth. Grief, like music, possesses us. I run a finger over the surfaces both of us have touched your heights on the door, the neck of your guitar, your songs in this room now rest as snow at the window. När jag öppnar dörren klinger hulrummet i gitarren din. Nyligen sydd med spindelväv från en ödelagd sträng. En dag vill sola sluka jorden. Musik håller tak i oss. Jag stryker en finger över överflatten. Bägge av oss har berört. Höjden din på dörren. Gitarhalsen din. Sångarna dina vilar i detta rumme som snö, ve, 
Binder. As I Push the Door by Harry Mann and Endra Ruset is from Utea Thereafter, published by Hercules Editions. The Norwegian edition is called Dareta and is published by Flammer Forlag. Harry Mann has won the Stephen Spender Prize and a Northern Writers Award. Additionally, he is the recipient of the UNESCO Bridges of Struga Award. With Endre Ruset, he co-wrote Dareta, which was a Dag Blaggett Book of the Year 2021. He has been a Clarissa Luard Award, Wordsworth Trust Poet-in-Residence, and teaches creative writing at the University of Oxford. You can find more of his work at manmadebooks.co.uk. Endre Ruset is a poet, literary critic and translator, and teaches regularly in schools and universities across Norway. He has been awarded a Bjornsson Scholarship, 2005, and the prestigious Bookkeeper Scholarship, 2015. He was also shortlisted for the Bastion Award for Translation. His collection, Noriaki, was re-released as a jazz album in collaboration with renowned Norwegian jazz musicians Jun Balka and Stian Umenos. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthful of air.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthful of air.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.